Well, I feel like we can close in prayer already. It's been already a God-blessed morning, um, but we have the privilege now of looking into God's Word. Last week, I began a study on prayer where we saw specific situations that call for prayers of faith. And although we are to pray for all things at all times, we know that in the Scriptures we are told that there are specific times where prayer is especially valuable, especially needed. And this morning we continue that study on prayer in James chapter 5, verses 6 through 18. But as you turn there, you'll notice that verse 16 starts with that grammatical connective word, therefore. In other words, because of something that James has already written, therefore you are to do what we're about to look at in verses 16 through 18. So a review, I believe, is in order to see what leads to this therefore and introduces our passage for this morning. So turn back to verse 13, verses 13 through 15 of James chapter 5, which is what we unpacked last Sunday. He writes, Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. And we saw last week in that passage four particular or specific circumstances in which James says this is a time to pray or have the elders come and pray for you. The first is in trials. Is anyone suffering? The second is in joy. In joy, is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises or to sing forth psalms or the scriptures, which is a form of prayer. Then he goes on to say in sickness, you are to be prayed for, of course, praying for yourself as well. And we saw also that we are to pray when we are in sin. And this was because at the end of this passage in verse, verses 14 and 15, we see a specific reference to the power of physical healing from illness as a result of prayer. And in this context, the physical malady, the illness, the sickness was a result of sin. Now, this is not always why we are sick. Not every time you have the sniffles or have to go to the hospital can you automatically say, well, it must be God's discipline for some sort of uh, sin that I'm committing or committed. But the Scriptures are very clear, and they reference sickness and even death as a form of discipline from the Lord because of sin among His people. And what we saw last week, is that it is not the prayer of another, including elders, that can forgive. But we can be praying for healing, which in this particular instance will come with repentance. So, by praying for healing, we are in essence praying for repentance should that individual be sick as a result of God's discipline for sin. Now, if that sick person does confess and repent, then he will be raised up from the sickbed by God. And when we ended this topic of being sick because of sin and the prayers involved in that, I may have left the issue open with a little bit of confusion and uncertainty because surely for many of us, this is something we might not have experienced, or if we did experience God's discipline through illness because of sin, we may not have even known that's why we were sick. But as we come to verses 16 through 18, connected by that word, therefore, James will unpack for us even more clearly this reality and the importance of prayer. So I'm going to read our passage for this morning, starting with the end of our passage last week, reading verses 15 through 18, our passage this morning being 16 through 18. He writes, The prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, 
And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. This morning I want to give you three actualities of powerful prayer. Three actualities of powerful prayer, including probably about halfway through our sermon, what powerful prayer exactly entails. But the first actuality of powerful prayer is the premise, the premise of powerful prayer. Let me read for you again the beginning of verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. We've already talked about what the therefore refers to, that prayer can lead to repentance and thus healing. And he says, confess your sins to one another because of that. Now, we understand confession as a key component of the Christian's daily walk with God. And we know that confessing our sins to God is acknowledging to God that you have sinned, telling Him that you have sinned. We have all experienced this, praying, Father, forgive me, I sinned against you because of such and such activity or thought. But the depth and power and spiritual beauty of confession cannot be fully grasped until you understand what the Greek word means. The Greek word, which we have translated for us as confess or confession, means to openly agree, to say the same thing. In other words, confession is not just telling God you have sinned, asking for forgiveness, but confession is agreeing with God that what you have done is indeed a violation of His will. It is the same thing. It is to say the same thing, rather, as God, in the sense of saying, yes, what I have done is sin, Lord, as you have defined it in your word. So, on the one hand, we can't sin and excuse it and indicate that or feel that it is not really sin or it's not that bad of sin because of whatever circumstances. You can't ignore or excuse thoughts, words, or actions that God says are sin by justifying or making excuses. There's no room in true confession for, well, I had to do it. You don't understand. Normally I wouldn't, but I had to do it. Or you don't understand my circumstances. Or anything else that would imply that sin is not sin if even just in that particular instance. On the other hand, we are not to add to the Scriptures, and we are not to call something sin that God does not call sin. Remember, it means agreeing with God. In other words, agreeing with what God's Word says. So we are not to take away from it, and we are not to add to it. When it comes to God and His Word, 100% accuracy is imperative. Now, you may refuse or refrain from doing certain things because it bothers your conscience, and that is great. That is wonderful. In fact, the New Testament says, if it bothers your conscience, that it is sin for you. But those extra-biblical, not unbiblical, Unbiblical means goes against or disagrees with the word. Extra-biblical means extra-biblical. It's not necessarily right or wrong. It's just something else, such as doing testimonies in morning service. That's not commanded. That's not forbidden. It's extra-biblical. So I wouldn't say it's sin for another church not to do that. I wouldn't say it's sin for another church to only do it in evening service or whatever it may be. See, good things, but not commanded or forbidden in the Scriptures. So, for example, if you as a Christian, for God's glory, for whatever reason, have a conviction that because you are a Christian, you should never let alcohol touch your lips, praise God for, you, for that, and you should continue doing that for God's glory. However, you cannot condemn another Christian, say it is sin for you to drink because the Bible doesn't say that. Now, we all know if they're getting drunk, that's a whole other issue because getting drunk is sin. So, when we confess, 
It has to be because of what the Scriptures say or a personal conviction that you have that you believe comes from the Scriptures, even if it's extra-biblically or you understand that the Holy Spirit is convicting your conscience. But again, we have to go first to the Word of God because if you're convicted, you say, well, this, it bothers my conscience to tell the truth for this in, to this individual because it will hurt their feelings, well then, my friends, that is not okay. You have to go back to the Scriptures, which says lying is sin. All right? So, agreeing with God, 100% accuracy is imperative. Now, this is especially true in the context of confessing our sins to one another, as James is calling for here. A very important, if you are sharing your sins for, with others in applying this verse, this command for all believers, by the way, it is assumed that you have already made confession to God. But other people are brought in for the sake of prayer, for sake of accountability, for the sake of encouragement, for the sake of rebuke, if necessary. This is a part of biblical fellowship. If you're new with us, you know that I like to say biblical fellowship instead of just fellowship, simply because in our modern times, people say, well, I had, a, I had great fellowship with a bunch of people. We watched the football game. Did you talk? No. Did you talk about the Lord? Of course not. But man, the nachos were great. Okay. Technically, you are with other Christians, but fellowship as we see it in the Scriptures is practicing the one another's. So there should have been something of biblical merit talking about God, encouraging one another, things like that. But this confessing our, pr- our sins to one another is part of biblical fellowship. And biblical fellowship is that unique opportunity we have to bring like-minded people into our lives for the sake of our spiritual well-being as well as their spiritual well-being. The New Testament is very clear on the importance of fellowship, which is why we're all here together which is why God didn't just say, read the Bible and worship, do a devotional at home, and that's it. He created the local church so that the family of God could come together to practice and to find those people for biblical fellowship whereby we would practice outside of Sunday mornings or any other gathering. And this particular aspect of fellowship that we're talking about here in James 5, confessing sins to one another, helps us immensely Because what is biblical fellowship all about? It is doing, saying, uh, being present in a way that drives all of us closer to Christ. And what is the greatest hindrance to any individual's closeness to Christ? It is sin. So you see how important it is that confessing our sins to one another is so important in biblical fellowship, which is to drive one another to more and greater godliness. By maintaining a friendship with another believer or believers at this level helps you in many ways. First, as we see right in this context, they pray for you. As we have seen this morning and last week, prayers from others are vital to help us ask the Lord for the strength and wisdom to repent of our sins, to strive for greater holiness. Second, it helps us to rely on those God has called us to rely on. In other words, if you foster those relationships, and after God Himself, other Christians are your first go-to, if you train yourself to think that way, you are reminded by other people to turn to God first and then to His people second. This then squashes the impulse to turn to the world, to turn to worldly wisdom, to turn to unbelievers, even your parents if they are unbelievers, Or it even squashes the impulse to turn to Christians outside of this local church who may not think like you and may not be like-minded in doctrine. And that leads us to our third benefit of confessing sins to one another, and that is an aspect of life that is so important in this whole thing and in the Christian walk, and that is humility. Humility. It takes great humility to confess your weaknesses to other people. But it takes great humility to be a Christian. So this goes hand in hand. 
Far too often we as believers share only with non-Christians because of our pride. We don't want to look bad in the church. We don't want to look bad in the eyes of those who we see on a regular basis. We often, if we don't turn to unbelievers, we would seek counsel outside of our local church. Strangers, pastors from other churches, friends that you have just met from other congregations, again, because we are afraid of what people in our church will think of us. It becomes all about our egos and our reputation and not about striving to be like Christ. Why wouldn't you? If you truly want to repent of your sins and have accountability, why wouldn't you want to seek out those who know you best and those whom you cannot get away from? That's a big part of it, isn't it? If any of you have had the opportunity to have your cubicle right outside of your boss's door, you probably work harder and take shorter breaks than everyone else. That's the idea of accountability from solid Christians who know you well. But this works both ways. If we are to confess our sins to one another, we are also to listen to the confession of sins from one another. So to be sure, if you are too proud to confess your sins to the believers closest to you, which should be those in your local church, then you need to take a deep dive into where your ego stands. But on the flip side, when others come to you for accountability and prayer, your pride will very much make that very uneasy and ultimately non-existent if you are just judgmental, if you bash them, if you engage in verbal condemnation or gossip. There must be humility among all of us. And perhaps that is the greatest reason we are afraid to confess our sins to one another, because of gossip, because of judgmental attitudes, because of lack of empathy and compassion. Oh, it's not that bad. Just get over it. But all that to say, we must confess our sins to one another, but we must also be the kind of people that make this biblical both as confessor and listener. Now, confessing sins to one another is only part of the equation, speaking of making this biblical. As mentioned earlier, there must first be a confession to the Lord. Although we must make amends to those we have sinned against, we first seek the forgiveness of God, who is the first and foremost and the primary person you have sinned against. Even in his sin against Bathsheba, his sin against Uriah, whom he killed to cover his pregnancy with Bathsheba, and his sin against his armies and entire nation because of this sin, David says in Psalm 51.4, in repentance of that particular sin or series of sins, he says, against you, God, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. This is to be our heart's motivation, to understand first and foremost that we have sinned against God and to seek His forgiveness and confess to Him first, then making it right with those you have offended, and then confessing to other believers for the sake of prayer and accountability. Now, the other part of this equation, in addition to confession to the Lord, is a turning from that sinful habit. It does you no good to continually confess and confess to the Lord and to other people if there is no repentance. That is, turning from the sin and turning to obedience. Putting off the sinful habit, not just to neutrality, but putting on a godly habit to replace that habit. Ephesians chapter 4 gives the example of if you are a thief, you don't just stop stealing and that's it. That would be wonderful from the world standards. Oh man, he's not stealing anymore. But that's enough. That's not enough for God. True repentance is you must stop stealing and then get a job and then give to the poor. That's what Ephesians 4 says. If you are unedifying, uh, a lot of backbiting, a lot of discouraging things come out of your lips, 
Ephesians 4 doesn't say just stop talking, just start saying pleasantries, just social, politically correct things. No, it says start saying things that are edifying towards other people according to the need of the moment, which takes a lot of thought. What is the need of the moment? What are they going through? So, there must be repentance. And this will only happen if the principles we have seen thus far are understood and applied, the principle of letting God define sin and the principle of repentance connected with confession. Would you turn with me very quickly to 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10? 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, is that passage in where the Apostle Paul is talking about sin and our view of sin, and there's two kinds of responses to sin. Actually, two kinds of sorrow. He says in verse 10 of 2 Corinthians 7, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret. We'd all like that, wouldn't we? leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So there's a difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Now, both situations, notice, have sorrow. You feel bad. You feel guilty. But feeling bad for sin can either be salvific or condemning. It either brings you closer to God or further from Him. So what is godly sorrow? This is the kind of sorrow that we just read about in David's life. This is a sorrow that is rooted in an understanding of the gravity of sin before God and remorse over offending and disobeying Him. Worldly sorrow, then, is sorrow over sin, but not as a response to a thriving relationship with God. It's a sorrow rooted in a reaction to unfavorable circumstances for you or even for other people. In other words, sorrow because there's negative worldly consequences, such as you lost your job, someone's mad at you, someone won't respond to your text. Even if you're okay, but you don't like the fact that you cause sadness in another person, that's all worldly sorrow because God's disconnected from that grief, that guilt. And worldly sorrow, Paul says, leads to death because it is indicative of someone who does not have a strong relationship or any relationship with God. Worldly sorrow is not for the Christian. Worldly sorrow does not respond to Scripture. Worldly sorrow means that when sin is committed, so long as it doesn't affect anyone else, there is no sorrow, confession, or repentance. Well, back to James. We know that Confessing to one another is not for the sake of forgiveness on God's behalf, as some false religions claim. Confessing to me or confessing to someone else does not absolve you of those sins. There's no confessional. I have no authority to forgive you of your sins as the priests in the Catholic Church claim to do. Frankly, biblically, they have no authority to do that either. They are deceived as are their followers. We don't have the ability to forgive someone's sins against God. We can forgive them for sins against us, that part of it, but we cannot cleanse them spiritually. What this is talking about then is confessing to each other so that we can pray for one another. And look at why are we, are, we are to pray. He says in verse 16, pray for one another so that you may be healed. And so the and connects the confession to praying. In other words, we are to pray in light of the confession or pray for what was just confessed. And here we shift from elders praying, as we saw last week, to all Christians praying for one another, which in this context is dependent on us being open and honest about our sin with one another. And the intended result of this prayer is physical healing. Because we're still talking about someone who is sick, and this reminds us not only of the responsibility for all of us to be open about our sins and to pray for others' struggles, but also reminds us that it is God who heals in response to prayer. It is God who forgives. And as stated earlier, we cannot force someone to repent. We cannot, 
We should not say, just say these words, please. It has to be from their heart. And again, our prayers cannot uh, directly result in God's forgiveness of the one we're praying for. It can, however, our prayers lead indirectly to their forgiveness because when they confess their sins to you, you pray for their repentance. If they do repent, then the healing will occur if that illness is indeed a result of sin. And so, by way of reminder, when I say that their illness is a result of sin, I am referring to God's discipline for sin in the form of sickness. This is not illness that is a natural or biological or medical result of sin. For example, an STD from immorality or a broken arm from fight, fighting someone in anger. And the expectation is that if someone has confessed their sin to you, then not only have they already confessed their sin to God, and if they haven't, encourage them to do so, but that their confession means they intend to change their sinful ways. Don't let them get away with just, I need to get this off my chest. Challenge them. What are you going to do about it before God? Because I don't matter. I'll pray for you. But what matters is your relationship with God. And although speaking of a very specific situation, the importance of openness among the brethren and prayer for each other is clearly emphasized. This does not mean you have to air out all of your struggles with everyone in the church. All right, everyone line up. This mic hot, let's go. No. It does mean that there should be some sort of mutual accountability and openness with one or more other believers. And we all have close friends that are Christians. And we do get together and call it fellowship. But if your time is not saturated with sharing and prayer, or at the very least sharing enough that you know how to pray for each other, then what is the point of having Christian friends? You're better off spending time with unbelievers for the sake of evangelism. And what I'm saying is there is a wasted opportunity every time you are with another one of God's children and do not use your God-given abilities as his children. Practice the one another's. Confess to one another. Pray for one another. Ultimately, this kind of powerful prayer is available only to us, the children of God. Look at the end of verse 16. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. And this brings us to our second actuality of powerful prayer, the promise, the promise of powerful prayer. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. This is a well-known statement, often recited as an encouraging word to both motivate to prayer as well as to strengthen faith in prayer, trust in prayer. There are several descriptors here such that we recognize that James does not just say prayer can accomplish much. He mentions the type of prayer, effective prayer, as well as the condition of the one praying, righteous. Those are both very important. First, it is effective prayer that he speaks of. This simply means to be effective or to produce something. This word in the Greek that is translated effective here is actually where we get the English word energy. It can literally be translated to do or to do work, which is essentially how the ESV translates it at the end of the verse. But what does this mean, effective prayer? Like that word energy, effective prayer means passionate and informed. But not just passionate because you're emotional, verbose, or excited and outgoing. This is passion that stems from the truth. I have been reciting this over and over again as I've talked to my wife about various situations that I'm involved in. Truth over feelings. Truth over emotions. Sometimes we want something so bad that we think it is the truth. But we need to cut through the emotions and look at what God's Word says first, and emotions are good, but they must come out of the truth. 
our emotions and our longings and desires cannot make us read into the truth and say, oh, this must be from God if God's Word doesn't say it. So, passionate and informed from the Word of God. This is passion that flows from a love of the brother or sister you are praying for, but a hatred of the sin. This hatred of the sin flows from a powerful love and worship of God, and this powerful love and worship of God flows from an understanding of the truth of Scripture. One of my favorite preachers, possibly my favorite preacher, is a preacher you've never heard of by the name of Alex Montoya. I first heard him when I was at a college uh, retreat. I was blown away by the power and passion and authority with which he preached. At the time, I had no idea he was actually a preaching professor and years later would become one of my preaching professors in seminary. He wrote a book called Preaching with Passion. Now, being a preaching professor, so understand, not a theology or a Bible professor, okay? The, the goal of seminary, at least if you're in a seminary that is training uh, preachers or you're in the degree that trains preachers in your seminary, is all of the Bible, the Bible survey, the theology ends up in the sermon. They teach you all of that stuff so that when you preach, you are accurate and all of those things come out properly. That's why a lot of times preaching is one of the last uh, classes that you take in a three- or four-year program because you need all of that Bible knowledge, and then you preach. Now, being a preaching professor, and again, not a Bible or theology professor, I assumed, like his class, that this book, How to Have Passion in Preaching, was a book on homiletics. Homiletics is simply the fancy word for the art of preaching or writing sermons. For example, something you would learn in a homiletics class is how to stand properly, how to write a proper outline, how to deliver that outline so it makes sense to your listeners, how to preach in a way that is not confusing, engaging illustrations, a good intro, a good conclusion, fitting application. I said, well, that would help with passion. But you can already see how doing those things do not draw passion from the heart. And that's not what his book was about. It wasn't, it isn't a book on homiletics. Because that's not how the passion Pastor Montoya preaches with comes about. The chapters in his book include titles such as Preaching with Spiritual Power where he writes about the personal holiness of the preacher and the submission to the Holy Spirit. There's a chapter, Preach with Compassion, where he talks about feeling, sharing, and carrying the pain and burdens of the people you are preaching to. So don't be a professional guest speaker. Preach to a congregation that you know and learn to love. There's a chapter, Preach with Authority, because you are commissioned by God and you're preaching His Word. Then there's the chapter, Preach with Urgency because of the destructive and devious nature of sin. In other words, this book is not about style and form in preaching. It is about the preacher's heart and soul. That is where passion in preaching come from, the same place where effectiveness in prayer comes from, your heart and your soul the authority of God's Word, the understanding of sin, your love for God, your love for the person who is confessing that sin. Not just so you will sound good, not just so more people will talk to you, not just because you're nosy and want to know everything about everyone, because you love God and you pursue holiness. And all you care about, or the, the main thing you care about in everyone else in this church, every other Christian in the world, it's not that they're happy, not that they get a good job, not that they get married, but that they are holy, that they love God. 
That is biblical fellowship. That is what's going to drive you to say, I don't care about my pride. I need accountability. I need prayer. And on the flip side, say, I am going to pray for you. Shh, everyone, quiet. Turn off the game. We need to pray right now. And if you can't get yourself to giggle, if you can't get yourself to stop getting on your tax, hey, guess, honey, guess what I just heard? Then you may go watch the game in another room, but we are believers here, and this man needs prayer. This woman needs prayer. But we have tickets. We're in line. I don't care. We're going back to the parking lot. We're going to pray for you right now. Because that's what you care about, not just having fun with each other. What is the point? Yes, go to your concerts, go to your games, go to whatever. But that can't be all that your relationship is about. As your pastor, I am so grieved. I am so grieved when some of the godliest people I know, they get together for dinner and I ask one of them, did you have a good spiritual conversation? Do spiritual conversations come up? No, not really. I kind of need to bring it up and it's really awkward. Why is it that of all people in the world, it is the followers of Christ that find it most awkward to talk about following Christ? Well, with that explanation of what effective prayer is, you can see the obvious connection to the phrase righteous man. There is no specific group of people that has a monopoly on effective prayer. Not elders, not teachers, not the elderly. You simply need to be righteous to have effective prayer and specifically effective prayer for the one who is sick as a result of discipline for sin. The righteous person is not just objectively righteous, in other words, saved, objectively righteous in the eyes of God, but someone who is actively righteous in the sense that he is, for starters, not struggling with the same sin as the person he is praying for, but also pursuing practical righteous living before God according to His Word. Prayers of faith come from those who are faithful, faithful people, or righteous people. Prayers that are strong come from spiritually strong people, and spiritually strong people are righteous people. This is not to say that if you are struggling with sin that God will not hear your prayers, but all of this works together. I believe it was last week I mentioned a hermeneutical principle that you are all aware of that says no point of Scripture when properly understood will contradict any other point of Scripture. In other words, it's all connected. It all works together. And on the flip side, and this is what the atheists and the liberals do, they misinterpret, take out of context, and if they can poke a hole anywhere in the Scriptures and get Christians to agree, then guess what? It's not just a small issue that's outdated. Go ahead. The dam is huge poke a little hole in it and see what happens in the next few weeks. The whole thing crumbles. And so we stand firm on every aspect of Scripture. But a similar principle holds true of Christian living. If you are sinning in one area, it affects every other area. You cannot tell me that you struggle with a particular sin or a particular doctrine, but everything else is okay. In the same way, my kids cannot stand in a circle around the trampoline in our backyard and say just one kid's going to bounce and the rest of them aren't going to move. Some may move less than others, but they're all going to move. It's all connected. But in the same way, if you are doing well in your pursuit of holiness, then you will do well in every area of your walk. If I ask a guy and say, how are you doing spiritually? And all they say is, I'm doing better. I'm excelling in my struggle with immorality and lust. That tells me nothing about their prayer life. It tells me nothing about their church attendance. It tells me nothing about their heart in several other areas. It's just one area. Everything is connected. We must view the Christian life as holistic. You cannot parcel out different doctrines, different scriptures, and say, well, got a 10 here, that averages out my two ones, right? 
We want to pursue excellence and perfection in everything. How does this pertain to this passage? If you are living righteously, then your prayers are going to exhibit more consistency, more alignment with God's revealed will, and more trust in Him to work powerfully. In other words, it will be effective prayer that can accomplish much. In the end, we know that it is all about God and His power and sovereignty. And by the way, that is, if you're living righteously, you're going to turn to Him more instead of trying to fix it yourself. But we also know that the Bible is full of God's promises as well as promised responses, blessings to obedience. So yes, this is not just talking about all Christians. This is talking about Christians who are pursuing holiness. And this doesn't mean that God only hears the prayers of the godly. This doesn't mean you shouldn't pray if you are struggling with sin. In fact, inherent in this scenario of being disciplined for sin with an illness is the fact that this sick person isn't praying. At least we know he's not confessing and repenting to the Lord. And speaking of the promises of the Bible, this actuality of prayer is one of only, only one of many promises in the New Testament for those who walk closely with God. This gives us even greater motivation to fellowship biblically. Getting to know one another so that we are comfortable sharing our struggles and praying for one another. This is more than just an obligation to pray. This is a power. It is a power given to the godly and an opportunity given to all believers. Like the predictable twist of almost every superhero movie where he wants to give up It's a thankless job. And a friend challenges him and says, you need to use your powers for good. You have been given this power. Use it for good. Stop just trying to be a normal person. And we need to be challenged to utilize the incredible power we have to speak to the one who can do anything about anything. What a waste. What a waste. Be a Superman, not a Clark Kent. You already have the ability. Use it. When we come to our final actuality of powerful prayer, we've seen the premise, the promise, and now the proof. The proof is in an example given in verses 17 through 18. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, And it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. There are few characters in the Bible as powerful, popular, and significant as the prophet Elijah. We get a glimpse into Jewish thinking in the Gospels, which also reveal to us how significant Elijah was both in their teaching as well as in God's plan. In Matthew 16, after he had been ministering for some time, the crowds had seen his miracles, the crowds had heard his authoritative teaching. Jesus is alone with his disciples and say, you've been out in the crowds and you hear people talking, who do they think I am? And one of the answers that the bulk of the Jews who knew of Jesus said, they think you're Elijah. Then in the next chapter, chapter 17, at the transfiguration, Of all the characters of the Bible, who shows up? Moses and Elijah to come and fellowship with the Son. Even at His crucifixion, when Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even at that point, some of the Jews said He's crying out, not to God the Father, He's crying out to Elijah. Personally, I've always been asked that question. Some of you, outside of Jesus Christ, of course, who is the one person you want to meet in heaven and talk to? My answer has always been Elijah, but kind of not really. Because in reading and what he has done and why he is so significant, the man terrifies me. I want to meet him. 
but he scares me. This is a man who took on the prophets of Baal, who hid all the other prophets of God because Jezebel, yes, that's a real person, that word is named after this queen, was killing all the prophets of God. And she had the power and the might and the military to do so. And here comes Elijah, comes to her face. And she says, you, killer of God's people, give me all of your prophets, your prophets of Baal. Total, there were 850 of them. And he had that that well-known challenge with them. See which of our gods, my real God or your God Baal, can bring down fire to burn up these oxen that we have cut up. What strikes me is the way he stood up to them, even sarcastically mocking them as they literally sliced open their own bodies in an attempt to get their false god to respond. Yell louder, he says. All of this is in 1 Kings 18, and if you're not familiar, I would encourage you to give it a read. Now that particular scene comes in the midst of a drought which God proclaimed on the land through Elijah because of their idolatry. The drought lasted for three years and six months, as James says here, confirmed by Jesus in Luke 4.25. And this was a powerful man. He had hero status among the Jews, and rightly so. A man greatly used by God and whose prayers were mightily answered by God. And James' point is found in the phrase, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Remember that James's original audience were Jews who had converted to Christianity? I mean, imagine being a Jew raised from birth to venerate Elijah as the greatest prophet and arguably the greatest man who has ever lived. And now as a believer, you are told that in Christ, you have the same power in prayer as Elijah, our hero. The kind of prayer that brought, then ended, a a three-and-a-half-year drought was prayed by a person who was just like you. When James says he had a nature like ours, it means he was just a human being. He had the same kind of feelings, circumstances, experiences, humanity. Elijah was not an angel. He wasn't a god. He was simply a faithful righteous man who loved the Lord and was trying to do his best. So when we talk about powerful prayer, understand that the most fascinating events that we read about in the Bible that were brought about by prayer were brought about by prayers of normal, average followers of God who had natures just like you, just like me. And since that is the case, why wouldn't you want to pray more for others? Big, powerful prayers. Prayers of trust. Prayers of faith. Not just praying to God for things that you know that you can accomplish on your own. Now, we need to trust God for all of those things. Our daily bread. Our daily commute. That you'll wake up in the morning. We need to trust the Lord for those things, and the Lord's Prayer teaches us to pray and ask for those things. But is it really a prayer of of faith? If I, as a pastor, say, well, you know, next week is Christmas service, and I always preach the gospel, and we've been averaging 105 people every Sunday, Lord, would you please, please bring at least 80 people to Christmas service? Come on. right? Please, Lord, help me finish this form which I have filled out a thousand times before at work. Again, we need to trust the Lord for those things and not get cocky, but pray prayers of faith such as, Lord, help this man repent so that you would heal him of his disease. Three actualities of powerful prayer, the premise, the promise, and the proof. Hopefully, this is a good reminder about our priorities when engaging with other Christians. The reality is that when it comes to others confessing sin to you, accountability and counsel are very important. 
but especially as those in this room who are more theologically inclined, we tend to jump to those things, in other words, our own strength, rather than to pray, and we must not forget to pray first. Every year, I take one of my children on a daddy-son trip. It's just an overnight. It usually coincides with our church retreat. I just take one of my boys, we, go, we alternate, and I go a day early. So this year I'll go a day early to Sacramento, have an overnight with one of my boys. I do that every year. And one of my first times doing this was when my oldest son was seven years old. And we were going somewhere again a day before a retreat, which at that year was in Monterey. We had been there before, and so he knew what kind of stores were there, what we could do there. And we had this conversation. I said, you excited for a daddy-son trip? He responded, yes. I said, well, there's not a lot to do there. We can go to the beach. We can take a walk. And he interrupted me, again, knowing what was there. Buy candy. Buy candy. And then I continued. We can snuggle. We can watch TV, and then he interrupted me again and hold, held up a finger, like number one, and he said, snuggling, most important. As believers, there's a lot of good and holy and righteous stuff that we can practice with the Christian, other Christians. Yes, encourage. Yes, admonish. Yes, counsel. Yes, just be present. But don't forget praying, most important. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the ability to commune with you. I pray, Father, that we would be a people who, though we may not often find ourselves in this particular situation, but that we would be willing to confess our sins to you first and foremost, and then to one another for the sake of accountability and more prayer. May we be a people who love you so much that we remove our pride and our egos and our fear of man, that we would confess, that we would listen, that we would confess back, and then we would pray, that we would love you so much that that love would flow out into our, a humble, loving attitude toward one another. Help us, Lord, to excel still more here at Grace Church of the Bay Area in biblical fellowship for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's stand.